are in a series called the five E's, which is the mission and purpose statement of our church. How many of you have been here every week so far for this series? Have you learned anything about our church? Hadn't it been good stuff? We, we started off that first week with Pastor Neil, who, who uh, took the letter exalt, the letter E for exalt, talked about our worship focus. And then, and then we went from there and Pastor Neil, he, or Pastor Kyle spoke. And then uh, last week, Pastor Brian, every week, these guys have taken another letter and have developed that and done a tremendous job. Uh, in fact, next week, it's going to be my turn to talk about the fellowship where we encourage fellowship. And I'm just a little bit uh, intimidated because after all these guys have gone and done such a great job, y'all are going to be disappointed when you start having to listen to me again. But uh, today we are talking about our the educate, the E for educate. And uh, this is our discipleship. And every week I specifically tried to handpick one of the fellows that I thought best fit that topic. And so uh, I saved this one for Pastor Randy, who is our uh, one o'clock pastor, our Hispanic pastor, one of our associate pastors. And I appreciate this guy. I love him so much. He does such a fantastic job. He's a good pastor. He's just a He's just, and he's such a good man, got such a humble spirit. I, I appreciate the kinder spirit and the friendship that, that we share, all of us do. But but um, we give Pastor Randy a hard time because, uh, you know, because he's smarter than all the rest of us. I think it's why I do it. I'm jealous of him because I, I wish I could speak as many languages as he can. He speaks at least three fluently, uh, English, Spanish, and in tongues. And so uh, sometimes I don't know which one we're in. And so... You know, I give him a hard time, but I love him, and we have a. And thankfully, he he knows how to take me and doesn't get offended. But I appreciate him so much, and I'm going to ask him if he would come and talk to us about that fifth, uh, that fourth E on educate. Would you welcome him to the pulpit this morning? Well, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> So if I speak in another language, you know, just, you know where I'm going. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you. You know, every time I have this opportunity, I see it as a privilege. And I really, I really mean it. You know, uh, when I share God's word, I really take it as a, as a privilege. You know, I, I don't feel like I'm worth it. You know, and I just thank God that he has given me this privilege to you know, to preach God's words to you. Amen. And, and thank you for trusting me, you know, to <laughs> on a Sunday morning with his pulpit, you know, to a guy with a heavy Hispanic accent. <laughs> and I'm not a, f- a funny guy like Pastor Brian, you know, even though his jokes didn't work in our service. <laughs> it, they just didn't make sense. <laughs> but uh, we had a good time with him last week. And, uh, so today, we're going to continue with this series on the five E's, the purpose of our church. And as Pastor D said, you know, uh, our, my word for today is educate the believers to follow Jesus. And it's about discipleship. Amen. And I want to start by reading a text with you in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, verse 19. It says... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for the opportunity to share your word. 
And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to be you, the one that speaks to us. Just prepare us, and we receive from you whatever challenge you have for us today. In Jesus' name, and we all say, Amen. Amen. I just wanted to start with uh, this morning with a story, and you probably heard of it, but I'm still going to say it anyways. This is a story of a, of a chicken and a pig. They lived on a farm, and Kyle's going to laugh because I, I say chicken in a funny way. <laughs> so we have a thing about chicken. <laughs> so there was this chicken and a pig. That, they lived on a farm, and the farmer was very good to them. And they both wanted to do something good for him. So one day the chicken approached the pig and asked or said to him, I have a great idea. Why don't we do something special for the farmer? He has been so good to us. Would you like to help? And the pig said, sure, you know, I'll help you out. What is it that you propose? And the chicken knew how much the farmer enjoyed a good healthy breakfast. He also knew how little time the farmer had to make a good breakfast. So I think the farmer would be very happy if we made him breakfast. And the pig thought about this. While not as close to the farmer, he too knew of the farmer's love for good breakfast. I'd be happy to help you, you know, make breakfast for him. What do you suggest we make? So the chicken understanding that he had little else to offer, he suggested, I'll provide the eggs. So the cow was around and she said, I'll put a glass of milk. And the chicken looked around, we need more. So she scratched her head and she said, ham. The farmer loves ham and eggs. And the pig, very mindful of this, uh, she, she said to, to, the, to the chicken, that's fine, but while you are all making a contribution, I'm making a real commitment here. It's very different what the chicken was giving, what the pig needed to give. It meant commitment. It was about giving his life. And... I believe that when we talk about discipleship or being a disciple, we need to talk about commitment. And now as a church and as a pastor, you know, we are all committed to you to teach you God's word. We are committed to educate you, to disciple you. And the main ways that we do this is by preaching God's word on every Sunday, every Wednesday night. And Sunday mornings, uh, if you come to Sunday school... And in my case, in our service, we also have small groups where we, where we believe is the best way to raise up disciples. And there are so many things that I wanted to tell you today about discipleship and just trying to choose, you know, uh, what to talk about. You know, it was a little bit of a challenge because there's so many things to talk about when it comes to discipleship. And, and I believe that the direction I'm going to take today, it's, it's, it's from God and uh because I believe sometimes in our churches, and I'm, I'm not talking about this church, but in general, we have raised up a lot of people that just have repeated a prayer. A prayer for salvation, but they have really never committed to being a true disciple of Jesus. And we were commanded to make disciples and not just a crowd. And as we read at the beginning of our text... Uh, the many, many of us used to talk about missions, you know, and I know Kyle preached about that on, uh, on this verse. 
And he explained, you know, the main focus of that verse. And I just want to repeat that. You know, the verse, that verse that we read, it should really say, make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. So the main verb there is to make disciples. And that is our command from Jesus. That is our commission. That we need to make disciples. We are to reproduce ourselves. And if we're not doing that, we're not fulfilling the great commission. No matter how big the church is. So I'm going to start by just putting the foundation of my message. And the first question that comes to mind, obviously, is what is a disciple? And in my terms, in sim- simple terms, a disciple is someone who has, who has responded to the gospel in faith and repentance and is following Christ. A disciple is someone who has responded to the gospel in faith and repentance and is following Christ. So discipleship then is the process of growing to be like Jesus. So when we talk about discipleship, it means that we are growing in our faith. We're maturing. And in theology, we call that sanctification. It's about maturing in our faith, trying to be like Jesus. Someone said that to disciple is the process of evangelizing non-believers, establishing believers in the faith, and equipping leaders. So as you see, the process of discipleship really begins even before someone is saved. You have to teach them God's word. They have to understand what it means to follow Jesus. You need to start discipling someone even before they get saved. So the title of my message today is Discipleship, an Invitation to Follow. And I'm going to go to our text today. It's going to be in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. We're going to examine the invitation of Jesus to follow him from this text, Luke 9, verse 23. And if you have it, just say amen says, and he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is what discipleship is all about. It's about following Jesus. And we as a church, we were trying to educate you to follow Christ. So, number one, the first thing that we see here is that it's an invitation for anyone. It says, if anyone... So by anyone, we really mean everyone. If you're old or young, if you're black or white, yellow or brown, women or men, it's an open invitation for everybody. So no matter your past, what you have done, because you you may say, well, it's because you don't know me. You you don't know what I have done in the past. This is an open invitation. It's to everyone, if anyone. Now, we are all sinners In need of grace. So don't disqualify yourself. Jesus is giving this invitation for everybody. Now remember that this is Jesus who initiates the calling. It's him the one that is inviting us. Now in those times it wasn't heard of for rabbis to call out anyone. A rabbi was a teacher of God's word back then the Old Testament. Now, they had disciples or students. 
And they, the students, they had to apply with the teacher to be accepted. If, if he was a teacher, he was a respectable teacher, you know, he had to be very selective. Who he was going to choose to be his disciples. So not everybody qualified. So they had to go through a rigorous test. They had to even memorize whole books of the Bible. They asked them, you know, questions like how many times the word Lord appears in Exodus chapter 17. You know, they had to be very sharp. So for a rabbi to go out and be asking people to follow him, it wasn't heard of. It was the student trying to apply. But here, Jesus changes the rules. Jesus calls everyone. Asking them, follow me. If anyone will follow me. It's also important to understand that the grace of God doesn't simply invite us to follow. But it teaches us to follow. And when Jesus says, follow me, it's because he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be able to follow. The second thing I want to talk today about is that it is a passionate pursuit. It says, if anyone will come after me. The next part of Jesus' invitation to follow in Luke 9 will make complete sense to followers. But it will seem a bit crazy to the uncommitted, to the ones that are only involved. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus defines the relationship he wants with us. He makes it clear what it means to be a follower. He says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the phrase I want to draw your attention to is come after. It's a phrase that was commonly used in the context of a romantic relationship. So when Jesus says come after, he's describing a passionate pursuit of someone you love. So the best way to understand what Jesus is wanting from us as followers is to compare how we pursue him to how we will pursue someone with whom we want to have a romantic relationship. Now, most of us have done some illogical and irrational things in the passionate pursuit of someone we love. It's a pursuit that can easily consume our thoughts, our resources, and our energy. Now, that's what, Jesus, that's what Jesus is looking for from a follower. He says, come after. In our world, the relationship we tend to be most passionate about pursuing is a romantic relationship. And we are surrounded by messages that emphasize romantic love as the ultimate human experience. And pursuing a romantic love will make us do some crazy things. How many of you will agree? Like me, I was working full time only to pay my long distance bills. <laughs> no, I came to Arkansas a year after dating my wife back in Texas. Well, she was my girlfriend back then. But I lived here for a year and she was living in Texas. So, I mean, back then there was no free long distance. <laughs> and those bills, they were like four or $500. <laughs> because we used to talk every night. It was like... Crazy. <laughs> and I know you may have, you know, some other crazy stories, but how many stories about chasing after Jesus do we really have? You know, Jesus wants us to understand that follow him is a pursuit that requires everything we have. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 
called the pearl of great price. And it gives a picture of what Jesus had in mind when he invited us to come after him. It says, chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, when we discover the life that we can have in Jesus, we are to come after him like these men pursued the pearl of great price. Involved people will be careful not to get carried away. But committed disciples understand that following Jesus is a pursuit that may cost them everything they have. But you know, it is the, ve- it is the best investment that you could ever make. You go and sell everything you have to go after Jesus. Committed people will do some crazy things for love. But in, uninvolved or just involved people will just want to play it safe. And sometimes we have people that just want to play it safe at church. Now those who are only involved have this fear by going all in. They fear that they're going to miss out on something. They want to have just enough of the pleasure without having to risk feeling any pain. And we want to enjoy what's available to us without having to sacrifice for it. So instead of come after, we hold back. It's not that we don't want a relationship with Jesus. We do. We just don't want it to cost us very much. Now, to go back to the romance metaphor, it's like a man and a, and a woman who have been dating. Things get pretty serious, and she wants to get married. He loves her and doesn't want to lose her, but he doesn't want to get married. Now, he's afraid that if he makes that kind of commitment, it will require too much of him, or somehow he'll miss out on, on something better. So he makes the suggestion, hey, why don't we move in together? Translate it. How about I get all the benefits of marriage without having to make any of the commitments and sacrifices? So that's the approach involved people take. They say to Jesus, hey, why don't we move in together? Someone suggested that unmarried couples living together should share the following vows. I'm going to read this to you. I, John, take you married to be my cohabitant, to have sex and to share my bills with I'll be around while things are good, but I probably won't, won't be if things get tough. If you should get a call, I'll run to the drugstore for some medicine. If you get sick to the point where you can no longer meet my needs, then I'll have to move on. Forsaking many others, I will be more or less faithful to you for as long as it feels good to me. If we should break up, it doesn't mean this wasn't special for me. I commit to live with you for as long as this works out. So... Involved people are often guilty of offering these kinds of vows to Jesus. I'll follow you as long as things are good and you hold up to your end of the deal. I'll follow you as long as you don't ask too much of me. We are afraid of passionately pursue him with our whole hearts. Because we know that if we make a commitment like that, we are putting ourselves on the line. It, it will require our energy, time, and money. In the parable of the, great, of the pearl of, of great price, the man sold everything he had to get the treasure. 
But once he had the treasure, did you notice his response? He says, then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Sacrificing everything he had for the treasure brought him great joy because he knew it was worth it. Just remember the words of Jesus are words of an invitation and not a command. Jesus begins the invitation to come after him with the word, if, if anyone. That indicates that there is a choice in the matter. One of the most basic truths about love is that it cannot be forced. If you try and force someone to love you, it's almost a guarantee that they won't. Pursuing Jesus is your choice. And Jesus wants to make it clear that you're agreeing to it if you respond to his invitation. He will settle for nothing less than to be the great love in the pursuit of your life. One of the greatest motivations of our love and passion in pursuit of Jesus is to better understand his love. Being loved causes, causes us to love. We read in 1 John four nineteen, it says, we love him because he first loved us. So if, if you have lost that, that joy, that love, that passion for him, what can you do? Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 through 5 Jesus says to this church, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You know, it says, if, if you have forsaken its first love. Other translation says, if you have lost or if you have left their first love. So that love refers to a loss of enthusiasm, of passion for God himself. So what do you do if you find yourself in that situation? Repent and start doing what you did at the beginning. When you, just, when you first came to Christ, what were you doing? That you were on fire for him. Start doing that again. Repent. The third thing I want to talk to you about today is that following Jesus is a total surrender. It says, let him deny himself. An uncommitted Christian will try and accept the invitation of Christ to follow, but they don't want to say no to themselves. Luke 9.23, Jesus makes it clear, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. You can come after Jesus without denying yourself. Denying yourself is part of the deal. You have to Make that commitment. The idea here is that you don't even acknowledge or recognize your own existence. How do you deny yourself in a culture that says it's all about yourself? Everything starts with an I. iPhone, iPad. You know, it's all about I, I. In Matthew chapter 19, we meet a man whose name we don't know. We learn enough about him from the gospel that he is referred to as the rich young ruler. He is following a path that has led to wealth and power. And that's the path most of us are taking to find. He comes to Jesus with a question in verse 16. Teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? He wants to know how to get to heaven. The way he asks, it reveals his true heart. He says, what must I do? 
That word could be translated acquire or earn. What must I earn or acquire? But Jesus tells this man what he needs to do in verse 21. He says, sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus invites the man to become his follower. But first the man is told to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. So he's faced with the choice of following Jesus or keeping his stuff. But he couldn't do both. There was no way to follow Jesus without denying himself. Many people want to make this story about money. But it's not, a, it's not as much about money as it is about following Jesus. Jesus puts this man at a crossroad. He can follow the path that leads to money or he can follow Jesus. But he cannot follow both. So what is true is that everyone who follows Jesus will find himself or herself at a similar crossroads. As this man in Matthew 19. You won't be able to take a path of following Jesus without walking away from a different path. He wanted to follow Jesus. But when he was forced to choose between Jesus and his stuff, he chose his stuff. He wouldn't deny himself. What choice will you make? Now some people try to negotiate the terms of the deal. I'll follow Jesus, but I'm, I'm not going to sell my possessions. I'll follow you, but let me go first and bury my parents. I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me first say goodbye to my family. I'll follow you, Jesus. But don't ask me to forgive people that have hurt me. I'll follow you, Jesus, but don't make, make me save sex for marriage. I'll follow you, Jesus, but I can help my desires. Don't ask me to give a percentage of my money. I work hard for that cash. And instead of following Jesus with, a, with their financial life, we follow Money Magazine. And in, in our relationship, instead of following Jesus, we follow Oprah. And in their sex life, instead of following Jesus, they follow Cosmo. So what the rich young ruler is really committed is revealing when he refuses to deny himself. He wanted to say yes to the following Jesus without saying no to himself. He wanted to be close enough to Jesus to have eternal life, but not so close that it required personal sacrifice. So for many Christians, the concept of denying themselves was not part of the deal. They signed up to follow Jesus, but if denying themselves was part of the deal or of the explanation, it was definitely in the fine print. And that's especially true of American culture, American churches. Capitalism has created a culture of consumers in our churches. Instead of approaching their faith with a spirit of self-denial that says, what can I do for Jesus? They have a consumer mentality that says, what can Jesus do for me? So now the churches have been sending the wrong message to the world. If you come to Jesus, your, your problems are going to be solved. You can have your best life now. Every day of Friday with Jesus. If you come to Jesus, you're going to be so happy. If you come to Jesus, whatever you want, you can get it here. Just claim it and get it. Who doesn't want to follow that? But the invitation of Jesus is, give up everything. The message of the church sounds less like deny yourself and, and more like Burger King's slogan, have it your way. 
And I fear the result is often a church full of just fanatics, but not many followers. You know, the Bible will describe a follower as a slave. And that is the exact opposite of a consumer. The image of a slave provides a picture of what deny yourself looks like. A slave has no rights. A slave has no possessions to call their own. A slave in Jesus' day didn't even have a personal identity. A slave doesn't get time off or to clock out at the end of the day. A slave doesn't get to negotiate. But a slave is the way many followers of Christ introduce themselves. When Peter began Second Peter, he didn't introduce himself by saying, Peter, a best friend of Jesus, present on the Mount of Transfiguration, preacher on the day of Pentecost. Instead, he simply says, Simon Peter, a slave. John, Timothy, and Jude all give themselves the same title. Even the Apostle Paul. James doesn't begin his letter by saying, James, the half-brother of the Son of God. He begins by saying, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons it's so hard for us to deny ourselves is because the whole idea seems to go against our greatest desire in life. Most everyone will say that what they want more than anything else is to be happy. We are convinced that the path to happiness means saying yes to ourselves. Indulgence is the path to happiness. So to deny ourselves seems to go in the opposite direction of what will make us happy. The right to pursue happiness seems to be in direct conflict with the call to deny ourselves. Now, the word slave is a common word used for followers, like I said. So it only makes sense that Jesus is often called Lord. When we read in the New Testament that Jesus is called Lord, we equate that with, with his divinity we think of Lord as synonym for God. But in the New Testament, when followers refer to Jesus as Lord, that is not a reference to his divine status or his heavenly residence. The word they were using wasn't Yahweh. Instead, the word that was translated as Lord in the New Testament is most often the word curious. It shows up hundreds of times. And curious is a slavery word. Curious is the word given to the master or owner of the slave. So the other word we need to understand is the word dolos. That's the word used to describe a follower. The definition of this word isn't difficult. It is a word, a word more, most accurately translated as slave. Really slave. And most of our translations, when the word slave appears, it was translated as servant. Because back then... They had a conflict about putting the word slave in our translations because of, of our past. So they used the, the word uh, servant. But the real word is to be a slave. Every time you see in the, in the Bible, you know, you have to be a servant. It is really slave. It's used 130 times in the New Testament. A servant works for someone. But a slave is owned by someone. Now with these words in mind, what I'm about to say seems like, like it should be pretty obvious, but may come as a surprise to uncommitted people. You cannot follow Jesus without declaring yourself his slave. 
Did you hear that? You can't call Jesus Lord without declaring you yourself his slave. When my kids come and they tell me, Daddy, they are declaring themselves children. My, they're declaring themselves that they are my daughters. So when we call Jesus Lord, we're declaring ourselves to be what? Slaves. Now, when we accept the invitation to follow Jesus, we are accepting the invitation to deny ourselves. We, we, we become his slaves. When we think of slavery, we think that it's forced. But actually, Jesus invites, invites us to deny ourselves. But who would want to be a slave? You know, it was rare, but in the Old Testament, we read of people who chose to be slaves. They were called bond slaves. These were people who were set free after being a slave for six years. But they decided they wanted to stay a slave. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 16 through 17, it says, But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. A bond slave is how many of the New Testament writers describe themselves. I am willingly becoming a slave, a slave for love. Will you choose to be that? Will you choose to be only an expectator at church? Or are you really committing yourself to be a slave of Jesus? It's a hard word. It is very difficult for us to really think of ourselves as being slaves. But that is what Jesus is asking of us. If we really want to follow him and make him our Lord, we're going to become Jesus' slaves for love. So we do it because we love Jesus. And this is my last point. Following Jesus is an everyday death. It says, take up his cross daily. It says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the symbol for followers of Christ is a cross. Amen. It's an instrument of torture and death. It's the image that represents the followers of Jesus. For the Jews, the cross was a means of execution that the Romans used to force them into submission. So the cross was a symbol of humiliation. The cross was a symbol of suffering. Before crucifying a criminal, it was common for the Romans to beat them just the way they did it with Jesus. So taking up your cross and following Jesus can and will bring pain and suffering. You cannot carry a cross without suffering. There is no comfortable way for you to carry a cross. I don't care how you position it. I often talk to people who are convinced that some suffering or pain in their lives is an indication that they must not be following Jesus. But the biblical reality is that when people say yes to following Jesus, they are agreeing to carry a cross. And that will be painful at times. And here's a question. Am I really carrying a cross if there's no suffering and sacrifice? Listen to that question again. Am I really carrying a cross 
if there is no suffering and sacrifice. When was the last time that following Jesus cost you something? When was the last time it cost you a relationship? When was the last time that following Jesus cost you a promotion? When is the last time it cost you a vacation? When is the last time you were mocked for your faith? Just forget about having our lives threatened. When is the last time you went without a meal for the sake of the gospel? Can you really say you're carrying a cross if it hasn't cost you anything? Just take a second and answer that in your, in your mind. Has it cost you anything? If not, then there is a chance, a good chance that you're not carrying a cross. Ultimately, the cross was a symbol of death. Jesus invites followers to die to themselves. We die to our own desires, our pursuits, and our plans. When we become followers of Jesus, of Jesus that is the end of us. A cross, more than anything else, represents death. Jesus takes the most despised and rejected symbol of his time and says, If you want to follow me, take this up. He invites us to die. Jesus makes it clear that following him makes him up, means taking up your cross and denying yourself. That's what a follower is committed to. Do we really want to be followers of Jesus? Or are we comfortable just being outside? Just being spectators? Are we going to be like the chicken and just come and lay eggs? Or are we going to be like the pig? We're going to be committed. We're going to give our lives. I know the contrast of a cross. It will be something more of comfort. Snuggy. Many churches have developed a snuggy theology. Where they try and make sure everyone is as comfortable as possible. The snuggy theology promises health, wealth to all who follow Jesus. And instead of promising you a cross to carry, they promise you a luxury car and a beautiful home and a beautiful wife. The message may be still preached from the Bible in a church, but certain parts are left out. You start to see the consequences of this snuggy theology. When someone's health takes a turn for the worse or their finances begin to fall apart, then they start questioning God because according to the gospel that was presented to them, God isn't holding up his end of the deal. And that is something that I had to realize a year ago, a year and a half ago, when my son died. That to know that just because you're following Jesus doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. That nothing wrong is going to happen to you. But the opposite is true. If we follow Jesus, we're going to suffer. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to suffer. In this world, you're going to be persecuted. I wonder how the early church will see ourselves now. When they died for the gospel. When it was torture. 
And now it's about coming to Jesus to feel comfortable. It may not look like the same gospel they were preaching. Come to Jesus and die for him. Now it's come to Jesus so that you can feel good about yourself. This is a dying daily. Take up your cross daily. Daily. And this is often where we leave his invitation. But the word continues. Take up your cross daily. To die for Christ is a daily decision. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. That's the next verse. It's only by dying to ourselves that we truly find life. When we finally let go of our lives, we find real life in Jesus. I want you to stand up with me today. This is about discipleship, right? This is about making a decision to be disciples. This is a decision about following Jesus. Now with that understanding of what it really means to follow Jesus, to carry your cross, to die daily for Him, that it is a sacrifice. Now, how many of you will really make a commitment to Jesus? Now that you really know what it's all about, would you really make a commitment to follow Jesus? I want us to pray and I, I even want to open up the altars. And this is a great time for you to recommit yourself and say, this is what I'm committing my life to. I'm going to come and I'm going to present myself as a sacrifice and say, Jesus, I really want to follow you. I know what it will cost me. It may cost me my time. It may cost me my life, my finances. If I have to sell what I have, I will do it. If that passage bothers you so much when Jesus said, sell everything. If it bothers you that much, it's because there's something in your heart that Jesus is asking of you. Let us pray. And as I'm praying, feel free to come to the altars and just recommit your life to Jesus. Or do it for the first time and say, I want to follow Jesus in faith, in repentance. Let us all pray. Father God, I thank you for your work because it's a challenge. It challenged me, God. To recommit my life to you. To reconsider your offer. To reconsider your calling, God. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Who's going to respond to you, Jesus, today? Come, follow me. Am I really committing myself to you? Am I going to really give my life up for you? Or am I going to stay comfortable here where I am? And I'm just going to watch. We may go, God, from 500 to 200 true followers of Jesus. But it's okay. God, we want to grow as disciples. We cannot do it on our own. It is by grace, by your Holy Spirit that you give us the power to overcome, to, to give us the strength to follow. Jesus, here we are. We want to follow you. We want to commit ourselves to you. And Father God, we as a church, we're going to commit ourselves to raise up disciples. To teach them God's word. 
let us let us see what the cost is going to be and make the decision God. we love you Lord we want to become your slaves for love Lord help us help us God I know this can be a hard word for us God but let your Holy Spirit do the work in our lives take our lives Jesus we love you Lord